one thing that we get to do that no other creature on the planet can do is that we get to add value by creating things. And I went from $40 million in revenue to watching everything that I had built for God get sold. You've got to make sure that your identity is solidly rooted in who you are in Christ and not in having money. I sold my company and I really had a hard time getting out of bed. Maybe been a long year, maybe been a hard life, maybe you're not alright. Faith-driven entrepreneurs to do what they want to do have to understand what God has given them. There's winners and learners, not winners and losers. I feel like I was chosen to be on this show for a reason and I had to do something. Like we are addicted to comfort. And he's called me into really difficult positions. That's what he's told me to walk into. People like you, people like me. This is where we all find grace. Come on now. Entrepreneurship can be a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. This podcast and the whole ministry seeks to equip you, the faith-driven entrepreneur, to seize the unique opportunities that God has placed in front of you and overcome the challenges that life will throw your way. These are the stories of how he takes broken things and makes them new. Come for the podcast, stay for the community. Welcome to Faith Driven Entrepreneur. Welcome back, everyone, to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur podcast. As Henry likes to say when we have a guest, they're in the house. Well, today's episode, we have Jenny Allen in the house. And Jenny is the founder and visionary of the women's organization If Gathering. She's also the host of the top-rated Made for This podcast, which, by the way, has over 17 million downloads. Yes, 17 million. She's also a New York Times bestselling author of Get Out of Your Head, which was the number one bestselling religion title of 2020. Her latest book is Find Your People, Building Deep Community in a Lonely World. She's appeared on shows such as Hallmark Home and Family, Fox News at Night with Shannon Bream, and been featured in various outlets such as The Woman's World, Brit Plus Co., Cosmopolitan.com, and Christianity Today. The estimated viewership for 2021's If Gathering exceeded 1 million women in all 50 states and 144 countries. Live streaming from Dallas, Texas, into thousands of churches, family rooms, and dorm rooms. We are so excited to talk with Jenny on today's episode of the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. Together, we're going to discuss in depth some of the powerful topics she writes about and how they relate to us as entrepreneurs. Let's jump in. Henry, all yours. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm here with Rusty and William. As per usual, gentlemen, greetings. Greetings. Greetings, indeed. It's a good day. Now, one of the things we've not talked about on the podcast a lot, and maybe for good reason, is our book. There's a book, Faith Driven Entrepreneur. And actually, I think it's really, really good. And it's not so much that I'm one of the co-authors, but that J.D. Greer and Chip Ingram are. And of course, we've got the Ford by Lecrae. And it's just a really neat time to be able to talk through a story form about the marks that we have of a faith driven entrepreneur. But I had an interesting experience with that last night. William was there to see it where we do this group called Inklings, Christ Followers in the Marketplace in the Bay Area. We get together at this place called the Dutch Goose, and we have a lot of fun. We do trivia for books. 
And so I was there with Peter Greer. Peter and I have been great friends for a long time. He used to serve on board together and just, he's a really good buddy of mine. He's also a great author. And so he did trivia for books. It was really hard to give my books away, even with Lecrae <laughs> as the doing the Ford, because everybody's like, I want one of Peter's books. And I'm trying to figure out if I should take it personally. Fortunately, well, I didn't because Peter's such an awesome guy. But uh, William, did that surprise you at all? I mean, you bring the books to most of the gatherings. So I think it was a lot of, I already have the book. I don't think it was a disdain for the book. I think it was, I've been given the book before, but you know what we've never promoted either is you personally read the audio book as well. I did. And gosh, I can, well, maybe if you listen to this podcast, then you think that my voice isn't completely annoying. Right. So this is probably good test market. There are probably people that don't like my voice and therefore don't listen to podcasts. So this is probably a safe audience to promote that. Right. Yeah. If you love listening to the podcast or if that's your preferred medium to listen to books, which probably means you're here, the audiobook may be of use. And Henry actually did take the time to read the whole thing. It's probably what, three, four hour listen. And yeah. uh, it's, it's really great. But what you should do at the next Inklings is give away an audiobook. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> no but no he, one does. That's one of the problems. <laughs> that's a problem. But here's what I can do. I can give away Jenny Allen books yes, because of the guys that go to this, I bet you that 95% of their wives know who Jenny Allen is. And that's because as good of an author as Peter Greer is and as well sold as his books are, Jenny Allen's really got something going. And I think that there are a lot of reasons for that. We're going to find out today because we've got Jenny Allen in the house. Jenny, greetings. Hey, guys. It's great to be here. We are going just as you go through the titles that you have, and Peter last night had seven or eight titles, and they're kind of all out, and there's some really, really great ones, Mission Drift and Rooting for Rivals, but nobody has better titles and themes for a faith-driven entrepreneur than Jenny Allen. Oh, yes. And you know the most recent one <laughs> is Find Your People. That's what this whole ministry is all about, people finding their tribe. Yeah. You've got Get Out of Your Head. You've got nothing to prove, which speaks to our identity in Christ, which is yeah. you know, one of our big marks, of course. You've got it all. You've got the chase study. You've got made for this. I mean, pretty much everything you have was made for the audience <laughs> of a faith-driven entrepreneur. So grateful to have you on. This is, it's this great is to be us. here. And I will say, I'm quite sure that probably comes out of the fact that I am an entrepreneur. I am married to an entrepreneur. We have birthed four entrepreneurs. Every one of them has a business that currently exists that's profitable or one in the making. And that's down to my seventh grade son. So, you wow. know, this is the air we breathe around here. What's your seventh grade son doing? Well, his passion is to learn to code. And so he's training right now to be a computer coder. <laughs> Very cool. I've yeah. never learned how to code. I miss that. I know. Coding I'm afraid the next generation, I'm it's going to be needed. Mine was worse. I spent five years on it from 2000 to 2005 and then was like, I don't know if it's going to take off. Yep. Let's go the finance route. <laughs> What's that on coding? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. I, that. I think it would be useful. You know, at least you know how. I mean, I feel like anybody that knows how to code, I take note. That's cool. why we call it a language. It's That's a right. language. It is. It's yeah. a language I do not know. Me either. Okay. So Jenny, unlike some of our guests, most of our people are going to know a little bit about you and maybe even a little bit about your life and your biography. But I would like for us to take a minute and go back and just before you started IF, and, and we want to spend some time talking about that entrepreneurial venture that you have, which undoubtedly has informed a lot of your writing. But before IF, who are you? Where do you come from? Mm. So I grew up as actually the daughter of an entrepreneur. He ran his own company for most of my childhood. And I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, met my husband at a summer camp. We fell madly in love, got married very young. 
And, you know, he basically went into church planting. And so that was our first entrepreneurial adventure together. And we handed that church off. It's still a healthy, thriving part of another bigger church. And then he went into business. And so during that season, what I would say is I started walking with God in college in a real way and immediately came to a place where I just wanted to teach and talk about God, which not everybody wants to hear about God. So I figured out pretty quickly that the best way to do that would be invite people to a Bible study. And I started doing that. And through those years, early years of young kids, that's just what I did in my living room for 15 years. I taught a Bible study in my living room. Eventually people were asking to come to that and we opened it up. And the first time we opened it up, I think 150 people came and the first Bible study I taught was actually, it was what now is stuck, which is a great title, but at the time it was God in your emotions and had like little pinned flowers at the top, but we've come a long way. Branding has gotten better, but anyway, that grew pretty fast for my living room. And then people were asking to print that study. And so we were sending that study out to other churches. So that led me into a backdoor to publishing where I was given, it was kind of a miracle. This never happens. I didn't have a platform because I wasn't trying to do what I do. I wasn't even aware you could do what I do. I mean, this was still back a long time ago when there weren't many people that had platforms like this, especially women that taught the Bible. And so I basically, you know, I cared about people knowing God and And I still, that's what drives me. And so I really got thrown into the deep end. And the first year that I was published, they published a book, a study. They put me on the biggest stages, like Catalyst, Women of Faith at the time was still going. And so I just got thrown into the deep end and I had to grow up fast and figure it out. And then If Gathering was born out of what I wanted to do most, which was to help people make disciples. I wanted to put tools in their hands to help them do that. So I had to learn a lot about the industry really quickly. Very overwhelming. My husband was really helpful in that. And then it looks like they spent a little time unpacking that when you talk about growing up fast and figuring it out. What did that mean? Because so you'd been spending time pouring in the lives of women in your living room and then your church. But what was it about the scale that you had to figure out quickly without losing your key message? Yeah. And I mean, I, I respect them. Um, let me start with a disclaimer here. I respect the industry that has given me what I get to do. I'm very grateful for it. I actually know some of the best people in the business that love God and they exist to do that. But the industry as a whole exists to make money. And I think what they bought from me, why, even though I didn't have a platform, they asked me to do all of this was because they saw a girl that genuinely loved God and had vision for my generation to love God too. And I had ideas to accomplish that. Well, if that's what they purchased, then I now had to figure out how to live in a world where this was a commodity. What had been my soul, like my just single hearted passion in life to just surrender to God and to help other people do the same now became a commodity and and held up a lot of people's jobs. And I understand now where that goes. But what I had to do was I had to shift perspectives. The first few years in it, I felt like they were using me and my faith and the things that I prized most. And I had to get to the place where I started using them. And again, I'm not talking about individuals. I just mean the machine. Mm -hmm. And when I started using the machine rather than the machine using me, then I was able to see it as great opportunity rather than pressure. So I was able to look at the opportunities I had and say, how can I take my single passion, my greatest hope for people to the world and use them to do it? 
rather than I'm a young girl that had no platform and we just gave you a contract and a chance and you've got to measure up. It was just a whole different way to look at it. So I, I think those first few years were so difficult because I still was just trying to figure out what do they want from me versus going back to the core thing that God had put in my heart, which was, this is how you reach this generation. This is what you do. And I knew, I mean, it was just kind of in me. I don't know what to say. I just, I knew that it needed to be more real than it was. I knew that it needed to be more local than it was. I knew it needed to be more candid and I needed to bring together a whole army of people to do it beside me and not just one person. I knew it needed to be more diverse. So I had all these goals of what I thought should happen and it turned out to work, you know, we're 10 years in now, but I, I mean, that was not being cheered on. They still wanted me to fit into what worked and what they knew worked. And I think in places and times they were correct because it was more helpful or useful, but in many ways, especially in the most important ways, I had to learn to use my voice and to lead and to not be afraid of failure because I was figuring it out. I was brand new to this. I basically went from my living room to 150 to the world. Like there was no progression. I've had to do counseling for it actually, just to, to deal with the fact of like being thrown on a stage of 11,000. I basically went from 150 to a stage of 11,000 with no interim thing. So again, I think there's a lot of blessing in success and there's a lot of blessing in getting to do the things I've gotten to do, but there's also a lot of pressures associated with it that I've had to get therapy for, <laughs> work out. <laughs> So Jenny, I love that concept. And I remember in the early stages of my career, just being deathly afraid of public speaking. And I realized that I was always on my heels. I was always kind of back mm -hmm. and I just kind of what was being done to me. And it was just this oppressing audience is kind of coming at me and I was kind of on my heels. And it wasn't until I realized that there's an opportunity to kind of lean into the opportunity, almost like physically yeah. lean in. So instead of being on the defensive, being on the offensive. Yes. And that sounds like that was a switch that yeah. you made. And so you're seeing the machine and then you're saying, okay, well, there's an opportunity to work with the machine so as to amplify what I believe God has given me. But along the way, you also see the machine as being a little bit broken. And so you come in with the if gathering, which is solving a problem. And that's an entrepreneurial idea and it's something different. Talk to us about creating that. Well, I remember, you know, being on those big stages and they would ask me, what do you think? I, I was one of the first ones in my age group to get those opportunities. And so I was the young one at the time, even though I wasn't that young, I was in my mid thirties, but they were all, you know, really in their mid fifties at that time. And so they asked me, what do you want to do to reach your generation? And I would tell them. And honestly, what I wanted was for somebody to take all my ideas and do them. I didn't actually want to run an organization. I didn't want to hire 20 people like we have now. I, I wanted to somebody else just to take what I thought should be done and do it. I didn't need to do it myself. And so, you know, I tried to do that. And I remember an incredible mentor that many of you would know her name, but she looked me in the eyes and said, Jenny, God gave this to you. You have to do this. Nobody else is going to be able to accomplish this. You are the visionary and God has given it to you. And I remember that day was that day I actually pulled over on the side of the road after we met and I wrote a letter to God and I said, okay, I'm going to do this but you know, I'm going to need your help, but I commit to do it. And we founded the organization right after that. And it was just this recognition of, I can't let somebody else take my dream. If I really want to hold the tensions and the values and the, really the picture that God had given me to accomplish, I couldn't expect the old guard to do it. And so the old guard had done great work. Are you kidding me? It's so amazing that the legacy that many of their ministries had and were leaving, but my age and younger were not feeling apart and they were not drawn to it. 
And so it was just our time. And I expect, you know, now I'm in my mid forties, it's been 10 years. So I expect I'm looking all the time for the new guard that's coming and I'm, I'm wanting to bless them and help them that that guard largely did that for me. And so I just feel like that was the point where I had to say, I'm going to have to do this. And there's going to be a lot of things I don't like about running an organization. I'm not good at. In fact, years in, I burn out and did some work with Patterson Center, which is a fantastic kind of life coaching strategic operations organization. And so they helped me realize that I had tried to manage something when I'm a really a creator. And so I got out of that and I began to let other people lead. And that really changed everything for me. But I do believe that if gathering was timely and what it did and what it has continued to do in an amazing way is it empowered women on a local level. So a lot of women at that point in the church did not feel like they had a place. They didn't know how to use their gifts. They didn't know how to lead. They felt kind of relegated to, you know, childcare things. They just didn't know where to run and yet they were full of passion and gifts. And so what we did is we said, Hey, we want you to serve your churches by leading and making disciples in your places. And we're going to tell you how to do it. And we're going to put tools in your hands to help you do it. And that's what's happened. And it was so cool. The first time we opened the gathering, we basically sold out pretty quickly in the in room, which we always do. And then we purposely close it. We don't go to stadiums. We didn't do what women of faith did. We said, we're going to close it and we're going to give you this tool so you can tune in live, but you've got to gather your people. So like right now we're month out. We have 3000 events signed up of 3000 women across the globe that have said, I'm going to host in my church, in my living room, whatever. And so we'll have thousands and thousands of events every year that are happening at the same time. And that was what was cool was we felt we were clear what we were doing. We were putting a tool in their hands to do their job. We were not trying to say, come to us. We were saying, we're going to come to you and we're going to bring you something useful that you can bring your people around and hopefully catalyze important conversations and discipleship to happen. Oh, that's amazing. And maybe want to give you just a few seconds. I feel like we've been talking about the organization, but maybe not what the organization does day to day a little bit. Tell us a little, just give us a quick, you know, what exactly are some of those tools? How does it work? Yeah. So our big push is March 4th and 5th, we have a conference and that's where 3000 events will be happening or plus, you know, probably by then four will be happening at the same time. And so anybody can host in their living room. And then we also build tools that help you make disciples where you are. We've done everything from how to study your Bible to what it looks like to become a Christian. We've just put all these tools together that are relevant, have the best teachers in Christendom right now, and then you can use them with your people. And we just believe in discipleship being, when we clarify what that means, what I mean by that is, and what the Bible says about that is follow me as I follow Christ. So we put tools in your hands and then you have real life relationships that we could never reach where you're able to take these tools and know what to do and how to bring people along in the faith. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. And I feel like we should have talked to you a few years ago because you solved the problem we stumbled across a few years ago and said, hey, why don't we do these events all over the world where people can bring each other at Faith Driven Entrepreneurs? So I think we had close to 150 of those type events last year. And 300, 300, 300. Don't don't short. See, COVID changed the game, right? I mean, that, that's the model now, but we were doing it 10 years ago. And so I think what was cool during COVID is we were able to go, okay, let's help other people do it because everybody was needing to do it. And, you know, I like it. I love the model. I think the model works and it keeps us as leaders in our place of content and vision, and then allows everybody locally to lead and to do That's very interesting because otherwise you bring all the leaders together and they don't bring their communities with them. And so instead staying in your community where you're in leadership and we'll bring the content to you. I think it happened because of COVID. I think it's likely to stay because I think it's the better model. Yeah. It is. And I think this generation too loves 
their living room and their pajamas and their closest friends. And I do think the more we can give them tools to do that in their neighborhoods and in their places, the better. I totally agree. And then just the, yes, the world's globalized, but local's never going to go away, right? There's still so many reasons to sit across from somebody and have coffee and so many things you can do. There's even a, Kurt Thompson's been writing a few articles on just how this is not a human interaction, right? Like it feels like it, it feels close to it, but like, I can't see all of your manners. I can't see how you're reacting to my questions in, in certain ways, right? I can't see all of how your body's moving and we're all sitting here and we can't move, right? I can't cross my legs and move, right? I mean, it's just not a fully human experience. And that localized thing gets that human experience in a way that's so remarkable. Mm, yeah, it is the thing we are craving most. And I know I'm jumping ahead, but coming out of this, the pandemic beside the pandemic has been disconnection and loneliness for sure. Man. Well, okay. So we are going to jump in now hard switch to your amazing books. So as Henry said, one of the ones we really, really love is nothing to prove. And that is so difficult for an entrepreneur. I heard Steph Curry say the other day that he has a lot to accomplish, but nothing to prove. And I thought that was so profound. I love that line. Right on the topic of your book. And so I just want to Mm -hmm. give you a chance. Good seems to speak so to the heart of the entrepreneur or the heart that the entrepreneur wants, but may not have. Could you talk to us a little bit about the book? Yeah. Let me go back to that story because honestly coming out of that season was when that book was written. So I'm turning the corner from trying to measure up to all these people that have spent money on me that have platformed me and I'm trying to measure up. And I remember my husband, the day that I went to my big publisher that signed me originally they brought in everybody. They brought in the event team. They brought in every, like the Bible say team, the book team, everybody was there. And, you know, they told me, they took me to dinner the night before I said, all this is going to happen. And I remember coming home and I was just crying to my husband. And I was like, I think they think that something I'm not like, I don't know. And they said, well, then you go in there and be exactly who you are. And I didn't take my notes and I walked in and I bled in front of them. And I was honest about my weakness and think I cussed and it's like a Christian publisher. And so I leave and they, you know, of course, story goes, they gave me the moon. I mean, they, they said, we, we want to help you do anything God's putting you to do. And there was no sense in it apart from the Lord's favor. And so what I learned early on was the more that I am imperfect, <laughs> the more that I am the less fancy version of myself, the more effective I actually was. Now, I know that's not true for everything. I would like my surgeon to be very very deliberate and excellent, right? I don't want him to be his worst version of himself, but I do hope that he's vulnerable. I do hope that he's honest about the things he is weak about because I would want a doctor or surgeon to know his weaknesses so that he can hire to them so that he can put people in place that serve them. So what I mean is I'm not saying we don't pursue excellence. I'm just saying that we're honest about where we aren't and we're honest about what is difficult for us. And we're honest about what we're struggling with, which right now, if we're all honest, we're all kind of struggling with something, right? And so what I learned early on was there was two ways to live. I could live as the fancy version of myself, but then I would have to continually keep that up. Or I could just out of the gate, not be that version. And I wouldn't be as impressive, but maybe I could be more helpful. And maybe at least I, my soul could survive that. And so I would say nothing to prove was that journey for me of not only doing that in my professional life, but doing that in my friendships, doing that 
I look back at my family relationships. That was a huge message in our family of just trying to measure up and be good enough. And so I just remember there constantly being a sting if things weren't good enough and nothing is ever good enough, right? I mean, in the worlds we all live in, everybody listening, it lives in, nothing is ever good enough. As someone who has New York Times, more weeks, I don't know, like tons and been successful, spoken on the biggest stages in Christendom, like, I'm just gonna tell you, you will never get to a place where you think, finally, now I have arrived and I am good enough. That's not going to happen. So if you know that, then you have that choice to be like, I'm not trying to be good enough. This isn't actually the goal. I'm actually trying to rest into God and who he's made me to be as best I can to work hard and to trust him with what isn't great. And so it was funny. You know, what's weird is I haven't talked about this in a long time, but when I went into ministry that way, I was actually very much judged for it. I mean, I could tell you stories that would make your skin crawl of people that critiqued me when I got off a stage and people, cause I same applied. Like I went in front of people and I, I didn't speak perfectly and I didn't script it exactly. And I didn't memorize it. And I was real and I was honest. And so I, at that time that wasn't really valued, but what's interesting, like I just did this at passion, which was 60,000 students and probably the biggest in-person stage I'd ever had. And it worked and I didn't take any notes And I spoke to them from my heart about what I saw in their generation, what I wanted for them. And all of them confessed their sin at the end. And I think what God's taught me is do what you do. Like what I do well is I'm real. What I do well is I share my heart in a way that isn't impressive, but it's honest. And, you know, it is what it is. And he's plugged me in where I need to be, right? There have been places and stages that that was not accepted or good. But if I would have become that and stayed that way, I would have missed the people that God had later on for me to reach because I became what the machine wanted of me. And I never actually was who God built me to be. And so it was a conviction and it's still a conviction. In fact, right before I went up on that stage, there were some incredible talks before me. And this was just Christmas break. Of course, I was nervous and I'm watching all these talks and I look at my husband. And I was like, I don't think this is going to be what they expect or like what, I don't know. Like, and he just said, run the play, run the play. Cause God had been so clear. This is what you're going to do. And so, you know, I ran the play and it accomplished the purposes it was supposed to. I don't know that anybody left and said that was the most impressive talk I ever heard, but the fruit of it was that lives were changed and I played my part. And I think that's what I hope for people is that instead of doing this, like trying to be awesome and trying to measure up and wasting all this energy on it, but to rest into who we are and giving what we've been given to give, it provides a story where one, we depend on each other and two, because we don't have everything in ourselves. And then two, God gets the glory because it's not us showing off. I usually have things to add. I'm not sure I do. I'm going to pause for a second and think through. It's so good. I mean, once again, entrepreneurs on average, right? what, 70, 80% of people that go into something, it it doesn't work, right? But hopefully they followed something that God's put inside of them. And they may not know why it didn't work or whose life they were impacted because they followed what God told them to do. Oh, I mean, I think about my husband, we've been in entrepreneurship for, you know, decades now. And I think between us, we have eight companies maybe. And I mean, the number of companies that have failed, the number of ideas that have failed, the number of dot coms or dot orgs or dot whatever we own, like that never amounted to anything. You know, we have all of that in our story. 
And I think what failure does, what the gift of failure is, is you realize you really are okay. Because ultimately the proving is trying to succeed, trying to win, trying to measure up, whatever it is and whoever you're trying to do it to, it's all the same feeling. And what failure does is, is when you lose things and at times we've lost everything, literally everything. When we've lost everything, you realize we're okay. Like it's not fun. And I mean, certainly some panic has ensued in those seasons and we've even had to borrow money. And, you know, there've been times where it's been costly. I'm not acting like that was easy, but looking back, it was nothing in the middle of it. It was everything, but looking back, it was nothing. And, and if we didn't have those things, I can't imagine what an arrogant punk we would both be without all that. Right. I mean, Instead, there's this compassion and we realize if anything does succeed, it's a gift and, and it won't last for long, right? I'm not expecting if gathering to have a 30 year run, I'm expecting it to serve its purpose and its time and go away because my identity isn't in those things. I'm not in all these things for them to succeed and be up and to the right, right? That's just, where do we get that? And if, are you kidding me? Like everything successful is like this windy road that dips and dips and dips and And so I think the faster you fail, the faster you can succeed, but you're going to fail along the way. So go do it. I'm sure somebody else wrote that line. I just recorded it. I don't know who, but I've learned it and I've learned it's true. That's great. Hey, Jenny, we're going to dive into a discussion about community, but for a second, I'm just going to remind our listeners about our faith-driven entrepreneur groups that we have. We love that people are here, but we also want them to stay for community. And that's, you know, what we're doing with our faith-driven entrepreneur groups, 10 to 15 people, like-minded entrepreneurs coming together, searching for life-giving friendships, you know, which is, you know, what we all need. And if anybody wants to do that, just take a look at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. Look under the community tab for more information, and then you can jump into a group. They meet for just eight weeks online or in person all over the world. So we just had to get that plug in there because we're talking about community. And you've got another great book that I want you to just sort of take and just open it up for us. And that's Mm. the book that Henry mentioned called Find Your People. Tell us all about it. Well, first of all, I love what you just shared about those groups. It's not something we had. I mean, we were entrepreneurs back when there weren't clubs for it, right? Like I don't remember having these kind of resources in our lives. So what a gift to people that need each other in this, because it is so lonely to start things. It is so lonely and and it's so easy to just feel like giving up. So what a gift. Yeah. Find your people. I, I mean, we're coming out of the pandemic. We've never been lonelier. Add to it. We are the loneliest generation that has ever lived. And that was prior to the pandemic. So we've got three in five people research says prior to the pandemic that would admit to feeling lonely, to being lonely. So I'm imagining that number is four out of five, if not five out of five. So we've got a complete epidemic of loneliness going on that expresses itself through anxiety that expresses itself through depression, suicidal thoughts. We've got a generation that only knows connection through their phones. So, oh, you know, very broken. So what I wanted to do, I actually visited several times for extended trips to Uganda, Rwanda, Haiti, and I saw women there going to get water, farming, building fires, living in their little huts without doors altogether. I saw these things and they were all happy, right? It's not what you see on the calls to charity, but they were all happy and they were giggling and laughing and I was jealous. And I I remember thinking back then, I'm going to do this book because I want to figure out what they know that we don't. And so I did the research. I looked at history. I looked at all the cultures alive today, all of the history generations, all of the cultures today, 80% of the cultures today live in villages. 
So I studied villages. Well, villages are unbelievable. And actually the science that we were getting today, recent science says we actually only have capacity for about 50 people to take care of them, to take them a casserole when their mom has cancer. That's our capacity. We've got capacity to be in and out of about five people's lives daily. We've got acquaintance level at 150. That's the most, well, that's the size of villages. That's how they took care of each other. That's how they farm. That's how they gathered. That's how they got, you know, their kids through school and raised. They all came together in groups of 50 to 150 and they took care of each other and they rarely moved. So you've got generation after generation. We're talking all of the earth until the industrial revolution lived in that size village and they didn't move more than 20 miles all their life. So they were together with their families, extended families, with the friends they've lived with all their lives. Well, of course, it's all broken. So now fast forward industrial revolution today, we are independent. We have the resources we need. Pastor Charles from Rwanda says the more resources someone gets, the more isolated they become. Well, we are resourced. We don't even need to borrow an egg. At least when I was growing up, we used to have to go borrow eggs. I don't know why it was always an egg, but I always borrowed an egg for my mom. I don't know why that was the only thing she always ran out of. And they borrowed from us, cup of brown sugar. Like we would do that all the time. We don't even have to do that anymore. So we've got, I mean, it's not even disputed, the loneliest generations ever lived, add the pandemic to it. So my hope is that we reframe the way we're doing life. And what I did was I took five patterns that I saw in villages, and this is everywhere from Europe and Italy. We went to a little bitty town there to, of course, African villages. I interviewed people from India. I interviewed people from all different countries and basically saw these five patterns that existed in all of these contexts that we can apply today. And it's possible. I just moved my husband and kids and I moved five years ago from Austin to Dallas. And this is how we built our community here. And it is so rich and so good and so different than how we built it in the past. So it does work, but we're definitely up against a big problem. So what are the five patterns? The first one is proximity. And this is the one we're really poor at because we think that we can, you know, a lot of us have long distance friends. A lot of us have internet friends. Well, we really need somebody to come over on a Tuesday night and to look into our eyes and say, you're not okay. I can tell. So we really need proximity. It's not that I can't have those long distance friends, but I've got to have friends that are local. And so when I moved to Dallas, I looked for five friends within five miles because of that. So you would run into them at the grocery store so that they hear about your kid getting in trouble before you even tell them. And that has happened. So I looked for those five friends within five miles. The next one is vulnerability. Hardest one for me, worst at it, have lost friends because I'm not good at it. I hate talking about my problems. But honestly, when I talk about my problems, something, Kurt Thompson will affirm this. He's taught me this. Something neurologically happens and the connection and empathy that you feel from someone physically feel from someone begins to heal and make connections in your brain that you need. So vulnerability is essential, but it also helps other people see that you need them. So when you're vulnerable, they feel safe to be vulnerable. And there's a mutual exchange going on, kind of like borrowing an egg or sugar. There's something like you need me and I need you. And so vulnerability can happen in a big city and it can be the exchange of need. And right now the epidemic and the thing that we need most is compassion and you've got anxiety on the rise. So it's the thing we can all share. So we may not need to plant a garden together, though. I do think communal gardens are popping up everywhere, which I love, but we can share our problems and our struggles and carry our burdens together. Number three is accountability. Accountability is so rare, but isn't all the village stuff that I studied. I mean, everyone lives in accountability. There's tribal elders. There's ways that they're accountable to people. One of my friends that I interviewed was from the slums in India. And 
He said he'd be running on the other side of the slums when he was growing up and somebody would yell his name and say, I'm going to tell your grandmother on you. And sure enough, his grandmother across the slum would hear about what he'd been doing on the other side of the slum. And, And I think that type of accountability where people catch us and call us out, we need that. The fourth pattern is mission, a shared mission. We need something to accomplish together. That's where your little groups are so powerful because you're accomplishing something together. You share interests, you share something that not everybody in the world shares. And so sharing a common interest, sharing something purposeful together, it can truly be anything, interest in anything. C.S. Lewis talks about this. I don't care what you're interested in, but you've got to have common purposes that develop friendship. And then the fifth thing is consistency, that you stay when it gets hard, that you don't go, that you clock hours together. The research I found shows that you need 200 hours for an acquaintance to become a really good friend. Well, that just is a lot of time in today's age because we're not together very much. So choosing hours and clocking those hours together and being consistent about it is important, but then also not running when the conflict comes because it will inevitably come and practicing all these, they're just patterns. And you're probably not going to have all five patterns and all your friendships. But the more you practice, the more patterns you have in that friendship, the more likely that's going to be a really close friend. That's super. Well, Henry, William, we've now done over 200 episodes that are about an hour apiece. So we can now call ourselves friends. Indeed. Indeed. (laughs) We've been consistently at it. So you've just been somebody that I used to know. Now Now we're really friends. I'm going to turn this over to Henry in a second, but I want to ask one question because, you know, in the entrepreneurial world, we're taught to network right? You got to be a networker and network. And so networking ends up, well, how many LinkedIn, you know, friends do I have? You know, what's my profile look like? All this kind of, can you just break down for our listeners, the difference between networking and being authentic? Mm. Well, I'm going to tie this a little bit into experiences I've had with some of you guys here, because I've been at some gatherings of entrepreneurs that William and Henry have been at. And it was interesting. My memories of those places are certainly the amazing people we've met like you guys and others. But what I found there was understanding and compassion and people talking about the toll on their marriage. And I found actually a lot of vulnerability there. So I think the two can coexist. I don't think networking is evil. It's another word for connection, but I think we have to realize it's limited, but all relationships are limited. It's okay that a relationship is transactional. It's okay. Most relationships are, in fact, all relationships have expectations on them. You cannot avoid having expectations on relationships, but where you get into trouble is if they stop at being transactional. So if you truly are just taking things from each other and never caring about each other, that's where you see it get a bad rap, right? But when you actually stop and you say, Hey, what's going on today? And I've learned this practice with the people I work with, especially during COVID and and having to zoom, because you just want to be off zoom, right? You just want to get the meeting over with and you want to get off. But I've learned to just start with, Hey, what's going on in your life right now? Like, tell me, I haven't seen you in a few weeks or talk to you. What do you need? How are you doing? Is there anything I can do for you or closing a meeting that way? And I think those are the things you can do to pastor people. It doesn't have to, might open a can of worms and they might ball their eyes out to you for an hour. That's okay. But usually what you'll get is just a little picture into the difficulties they're facing at home. It gives you a little more compassion for the fact that they were late. That gives you a little bit more compassion for the fact that that transaction isn't going as well as you wish it was. And so I've just found layering into work relationships, into networking, like you said, a lot of vulnerable conversation and just checking on people and really caring about the person before you care about what they do for you is it changes a relationship. And it's okay that they do things for you. It's just that ultimately they know 
you care about them more than you care about what they do for you. Tell us about how you view conflict and just strengthening relationships or yeah, let's look at through of course through the positive lens of how does leaning into conflict help strengthen relationships. And I'm thinking about this as it it comes to mind, I think about the conflict that David and I had in the early days of bandwidth. And we had a lot of conflict. We called it iron sharpening iron, but it was very much part of our formation. And I don't know that I do it any differently. But you talk about that a bit in terms of forging relationships and community. Part of that comes from vulnerability, which would presumably mean that, you know, I don't like what you're doing, right? So you can't be really vulnerable. You can't have real relationship if you're always conflict averse. How do you embrace conflict? Mm, I could not agree more with what you just said. You cannot be in deep, real relationship trying to avoid conflict. It will find you. If you live the way that the Bible tells you to live with people, which the whole Bible was written about people dealing with other people and dealing with God, right? Like that was the whole story, starting with Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, all the way to the local churches discussed in Revelation. So you see just this, it's all about people. It's Adam's on the earth. It's not good for man to be alone. So God builds a family. God builds from a family, a people group from that nations through one nation, he launches the local church. And so you see just the whole book is about people. And so most of it says really beautiful things about it, but in reality, they're horrible things like admonish one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, all these things that that sounds great until you do those things. That's horrible. Like that is actually painful and horrible. When you admonish someone, like, I don't know if you've done that lately, but that is really awkward and it goes poorly a lot of the time. When you need to forgive someone, it's because they've been horrible to you and they have hurt you and your pride is like reeling and you're supposed to go and say, I forgive you or at least do it in your heart. Like that is so hard. So turn the other cheek. I mean, these are crazy statements. And so I think the reality of the Bible is actually complete grounds for if you're not having conflict, there's probably a problem because the whole book was written for a lot of conflict between people because God knew we would be disappointing each other all along the way, which we do. So the funny thing is we're so afraid of it. And I think the reason we're so afraid of it, I would say, is because in our culture and day, which is, again, relatively new way of doing life. And obviously my cards are showing that I think it's completely a broken, twisted way to do life. But in our day, we can go find other friends, right? Like we can actually just quit them and they, people do it all the time. And as soon as it gets awkward, as soon as it gets hard, it's like, hmm, that's a little weird. Let's go. Well, that's actually probably right when the friendship or relationship is getting good. That actually is probably exactly before it's going to be great. Because I tell my kids, if you have not had a conflict with a friend, you don't know that they're your friend yet. Because until you've conflicted, you don't know that they won't leave when you do. So once you've made it through your first conflict, then you know, okay, this is probably a friend that will stick and will stay. So I always say, wait for it, look for it. Don't be afraid of it. I've It's crazy. But I have prayed for conflict in a friendship before because I knew we were really close and I needed her and I wanted to make sure we would make it through that. So I said, God, would you please give us a conflict? So I'll know that we can make it through it. And he did. I mean, it didn't even take long. So I would just say, I don't fear it. Now we've got to get good at it. One of the things I did in the book was I wrote how to do things like how to conflict, how to say you're sorry, all these things that when I was reading it in the audio book, it felt like elementary school. I was like, I can't believe this stuff. And I started laughing. I was like, I can't believe I said it this way. Like, I'm so sorry. Like this was to the producer. The producer was like, actually, Jenny, I love that you said it this way because 
I didn't know this stuff. And we never got that first grade class, right? We never got the class that was like, here's how you make a friend. Here's how you fight. Here's how you make up. Like we never got that class. I mean, maybe if we had good parents, they worked through it with us, with our siblings, but nobody ever sat down and said, here's how you do it. And so I hope and think we've got to get better at that. And then maybe we wouldn't be so afraid of it. Wow. That's great. And uh, for entrepreneurs, I just think it's huge because it's a space where you're constantly learning, right? You don't have all the answers. You're trying to find an answer and conflict breeds amazing conversations. And, you know, so specifically in this realm, I just don't know how, I can't imagine the business that shows up that was built outside of healthy conflict. (laughs) I've never heard of that one. Well, And the reason why that's true is because you've got two people coming together for one purpose that have different ideas, right? This is true in marriage. This is true in families. This is true in friendship. This is true in work. But the power of that is we're, we actually complement each other and we make each other better, right? That's why all of this works. Accountability is a horrible word. Submission. Are you kidding? Nobody likes those words, but you actually put someone under submission. That's a really strong leader. And they have to answer to a board. Like I do that's questioning like, Hey, how, what about that? And what about that? And we're looking at your finances and what about that? It doesn't feel good, but it makes me better. And it makes our organization not, you know, go to the IRS and me go to jail, right? Like it's a good thing to have those things in our lives, but they don't feel good in the moment. Absolutely. And unfortunately, that's going to lead us to our close here because we're coming to the top of the hour. One of the things we love to do at the end of each of our episodes is try to see how God's word can span between our guests and our listeners. And so we love to invite our guests to share where God has them. That could be something you read this morning. It could be something you've been meditating on for a while. It could be something from your talk you just gave, but just share something from God's word that's uh, coming alive to you in maybe a new way today. Okay. Let me do this especially in light of what we've been talking about. Let me share this. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. What that means, what that permission slip means is that you get to fail, that you get to be imperfect, that you get to bring, should get to bring to other people that believe in that verse as well. You should get to bring your weakest places. You should get to bring the most difficult things to you. And if that happens, if we believed that verse and we actually lived out that verse, I think there would be revival. I think there would be revival of our souls because we would feel known. We wouldn't hide. We wouldn't pretend we were something that we weren't. We would not live under the condemnation that the enemy wants us to. And then secondly, we would, I think, be dangerous for the kingdom because we would no longer need to prove anything because the most important things have been solved in our lives. And those are the people, the people that believe just that one verse, those are the greatest people you want to be around all the time. Like they are the people that are so life-giving, that are so dream inspiring, that are behind you, that give space and grace to life. And so that is my prayer that I become that type of person. I really want to become someone who believes that verse down to my bones, who is honest about my own struggles and not hiding them, who lets other people share their struggles and tells them the hope of God. And I think if we could do that and build more spaces like that, I don't know. I think it would be good for heaven. Amen. Might be uh, bringing a little bit of heaven to earth even. Yes. (laughs) Heard heard that somewhere. Let it be. Amen. Thank you so much. This has been such a gift to us. I can speak for us and our audience and just so grateful for what you're doing, what you have done and what you've allowed God to do through following his call and his leanings. So grateful for you back at you guys. Very grateful this exists. So thank you for the work you've done and the things you've built. 
We are grateful for the opportunity to serve the community and see listeners come in from more than 100 countries. Entrepreneurship is often a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. The best way to stay connected is to join a group study with other faith-driven entrepreneurs like yourself. There's no cost, no catch. In person or online, you can meet for an hour a week with your peers from your backyard or the other side of the world. You can also stay connected by signing up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends. Executive producer Justin Foreman, intro mixed and arranged by Summer Dregs, audio and editing by Richard Barley, our theme song is In the House by David Crowder. 